Today on Quest, the Second Lady of Pennsylvania, Giselle Fetterman. Life is a quest for logic and reason. It is a quest to find balance between science and faith. Life is a quest for knowledge and understanding. But most importantly, it's a quest for personal discovery. Whatever your quest, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Welcome to Quest. Hello everyone, I'm your host, Todd Fisher, and this is Quest. For those of you that might be new listeners, let me tell you a little about me. I'm the founder of Metatomics and the author of the best-selling book, Metatomics, The Grand Design. I'm a philosopher, a theorist, a metaphysicist. I'm a perpetual pupil of theology, and I'm an expert in comparative religious study. I've also extensively researched the mind-body connection, anatomy, and physiology. I documented over 300 case studies while researching my book, all from a scientific perspective with cases that range from near-death and out-of-body experiences to possession to past-life experiences, as well as the metaphysical, the paranormal, and other unexplained cases of a spiritual nature. This podcast will bring you some of those astonishing stories, and in some cases by the people that actually lived them. From time to time, I'll be talking about important, perhaps even controversial issues from both spiritual and scientific points of view. The world we live in is ever-changing, and there's often a conflict between spirituality and science, and I wanted to bring you this podcast to balance that equation. It will show you how we know what we know, and there's still so much we don't know. For me, curiosity is part of what makes us human. It's the joy of discovery. It's what drives us. It's our quest. Hi everyone, welcome to Quest. Today my interview is with Giselle Fetterman, the second lady of Pennsylvania. She's a fascinating, fascinating woman. I want to say that I am very sorry that there are a lot of sniffles in this podcast. I had a terrible cold when I interviewed her, so you will hear a few uh, unnatural sounds coming from me during the podcast, so I apologize But don't let that deter you from this really cool interview. Giselle is a former undocumented immigrant who became a U.S. citizen and used her platform to help all manner of Americans. And she is far more than a figurehead or a lieutenant governor's spouse. She's really an amazing person doing amazing things. I think you'll really like this. Here's the interview. Hi, Giselle. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Todd. Well, Giselle, you are uh, very interesting to me, and uh, and you are in the news lately. And I, I saw this this I think I saw it on TMZ for the first time. You were verbally accosted at a at a store. You were just going to buy some fruit, and a woman started yelling racially motivated things at you, and 
I, I was like, well, this is, I see this a lot. I see this kind of thing all the time. And then I see that you are the Lieutenant Governor of Pennsylvania's wife. You're the second lady. And I was like, wow, this is like crazy. This has happened to you. So tell me a little about that story. This is insane. What's going on here in the world today? Yeah, so I, um, I'm usually under the protection of Pennsylvania State Troopers who take really great care of my family and I'm, I'm grateful to them. And this was a Sunday, rainy evening. I was in for the night. Um, and then I remember that the Golden Kiwi sale was ending that night. <laughs> and yeah. the grocery store is just three minutes from my home. So I didn't think anything of it. I just jumped in my Jeep and ran off to get some kiwis. And as I'm standing in line to pay, a woman passes by me and recognizes me. And then that's when it begins. Um, it started inside the store and then it continued outside the store into my car. And you actually got a little bit of it on video, which is kind of out there circulating on the internet right now. And it, it was awful, you know, and when I saw it and then I, I saw that it happened to you and I started to look into you know who you were i saw that you've done all the you have this incredible backstory and all of this amazing stuff that you've done which we're going to get into in this podcast and i was like wow this is uh this is an interview that i really want to to get on quest because i felt like there was so much more that you could talk about outside of that so we're going to come back to this verbal thing a little bit later in the podcast but i want to back everyone up right now to talk about young giselle so you were, you were born in Rio. Let's talk about kind of like your family life. You all left Rio to come to America. Will you tell that story? Yeah, absolutely. I'm very proud of that story. I was born in Rio de Janeiro. That's where I was raised. I was raised by a single mom. It was just my mom, my grandmother, my brother and I. And I came from a lot of love. You know, I um, had a very loving family. And my mom in Brazil had advanced degrees and she ran uh, nutrition and over the hospitals she oversaw the nutrition for all the patients so she had a very coveted career um we had a nice home and by all accounts our family was great but we did live in a big city in a city that is often at the top of the most dangerous cities list sure when my mom left for work i didn't know if she was going to come home in one piece and you know my family has experienced a lot of violence there, as have many of my neighbors there. And it's sad because Rio is, is an incredible city. It's, I think, the prettiest in the world. And the people are amazing. But the inequality in my country is so stark that it creates an environment of violence. So my mom said that the moment she decided that it was time to go was when she was having dinner with my aunt who shared that she had only been robbed seven times that year. Oh, my. And the number to her, though, wasn't shocking, right? <laughs> so <laughs> she wasn't shocked by the number. It was more the acceptance or the surrendering that this is normal, that this is what life is. And my mom said that was kind of an aha moment for her. She did not ever want to see my brother or I speak about violence with such an acceptance. Wow. She came, you know, home. She quit her job, sold our, our house, came home with a suitcase for me, went to my brother and asked that we pack our favorite things because we were off to an adventure. Wow. <laughs> and she worded it as an adventure. And I was seven. So at seven years old, 
I think things are really important to you. And I remember having to pick only what could fit in my suitcase of my entire life. And I remember I packed a teddy bear and a doll and a journal and a few things. Um, and we were off. We arrived in New York. We were the first in our family to immigrate. So we didn't have anyone there um, when we arrived. We didn't speak English. My mom didn't have a job lined up. It was really, truly an adventure. <laughs> and wow. We arrived, we found an apartment. My mom quickly found work as a domestic worker. So she cleaned hotels and cleaned homes. I was an ESL student and our American journey began there. And uh, we were on top of that undocumented and that began an almost 15 year journey of living under the shadows in the US. And that was what, around 1990? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's interesting, you, you know, you, the way you, you talk about um, Rio, you know, I think for Americans anyways, our perspective of Rio is, you know, it's a party city and it's beaches and people in swimsuits and bikinis and it's, and that's kind of what you see and people don't think about everything else that goes on in a, in a big city like that. And it's, uh, it's uh, unfortunate that you had to to live through that. And it's shocking to hear you say that she was only, you're, that your aunt was only robbed seven times that year. Only, you know, that's what's yeah. insane to think about. Um, big city in, in, the third, in the third world country will have its level. Yeah. So like travel leisure magazines, they put out a list every year, the most dangerous cities in the world. And yeah. that list of the top 40, Brazil made that list 17 times. Oh, wow. I love it country love 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 my country um but it has challenges as do all places and that is one of our challenges sure sure did you grow up spiritual or religious um my grandmother and my mom are religious i i think i've just been trying to figure it out for a long time sure yeah which is common i hear that a lot with people when you so you're you all are living you know under the radar in new york I remember uh, reading a quote with you that, you know, your, your mother had kind of given you instructions to kind of always be looking over your shoulder and listening for knocks at the door and things like that, because the way you all were, were living. Yeah, um, say, I love you. Have a great day. Be invisible. And be invisible. Every morning when I left the door to go to school. What was your first job in New York? So by this time, by the time of my first job, I had, we had settled in New Jersey. Okay. I, at Baskin Robbins, that was my first job. Yeah. What about your schooling? What? How did you? Where did? How did you go through your schooling in in New York and New Jersey? How did that? How did that work? You just enrolled. You know, I don't know if the system has changed since, but um, public school, you you can you just enroll and you get to go to school. You can't really turn away a child because they're undocumented, and you can't really ask them if they are. Gotcha. I see. I see. I see. How many languages do you speak? I speak three fluently and I dabble in a few more. Wow. That's incredible. By your mid twenties, you were already really an activist and you were kind of you were focusing on nutrition and food, uh, food equity and things like this. Tell me about where you were at in your, in your young life there, what you were getting into, what your focus was like. 
So when I was growing up under the radar, I saw injustices or things that I thought could be done better, but I couldn't do anything about it, right? Because I, I was invisible. So sure. we had a period where we dumpster dived and I learned about this whole underground world where grocery stores would discard perfectly good food and just throw it in the dumpster. And it was shocking for me as a child having just moved from a third world country where people were quite literally dying of hunger and to this country of disposability and excess. And I remember being shocked, but not being able to do something about it other than kind of parking it somewhere in my head for one day. And when we had, we found our apartment in New York, we had no furniture. And then we learned about bulk garbage day, which is the, the day where everyone takes out their big furniture for the truck to come to destroy it, to put it in a landfill. And I remember being shocked saying like, mom, why is this all in the street? Like, this is a nice dresser. This is a nice desk. Why is it being thrown out? Because in my country, you find a home for something, you know, or if you're able to afford something new, you find a place for your thing. You just don't throw things out like that. So it began this kind of lifelong obsession or commitment to showing the value in things, in places, and in people. Right. My, our first apartment entirely furnished from bulk garbage day. And my mom made it a really fun adventure. So we found out which neighborhood was slightly better than our neighborhood. That's <laughs> 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 where you find the good stuff. And we knew what date their garbage night was. And we'd go and we would constantly swap. Like that dresser is better than our dresser. And we were always on the swap. And I was actually at my mom's a couple of days ago and she still has one of my dressers, which was like my garbage dresser. Yeah. One that I grew up with and she still has it. Wow. I, you know, I think everyone has done that to some extent. I remember walking down an alley one day and someone had thrown a really nice desk out. That was like, wow, that's a nice desk. And I took that desk and put I that in my office. I find myself slowing down at like the good curves and just <laughs> a peak. <laughs> uh, you, so you moved into a lot of, uh, so you obviously you had your eye on this type of thing. Tell me the story about what, what project you were working on when you met your, your, your future husband. So I was working with uh, food security in Newark, New Jersey. Um, the area I worked was a food desert. So I was working with local families on how to make the best possible options when you're completely limited. And I was a big sister through the Big Brothers and Big Sisters program. So I had a little that I was matched with when she was seven. She is 22 now and in college. Um, so my work, really started in Newark. That's where I started doing. I would do pop-up events like I would. There was a fire and I learned that the family that had the fire didn't have a detector. So then I would reach out to a company, get a ton of detectors donated and then distribute them. So that's the work that I was doing um, in Newark. Yeah. And I um, was at a retreat and I picked up a magazine and in that magazine, there was an article about Braddock, Pennsylvania. And by this time I have a career and I own a home and I'm pretty settled with no intentions of <laughs> moving or starting a new life somewhere else. Sure. Um, but I, when I 
worked and lived between New York and New Jersey, I had this, this deep love affair with the Brooklyn Bridge. I just was mesmerized by it. I thought it was the most beautiful bridge in the world. And I would wonder how someone thought to build it. How did they know it was going to hold up? And I just thought it was beautiful. And I, so I read this article about this city that was essentially discarded. It was a city that at its height had over 20,000 residents. It was um, really prominent. Everyone would come and do their shopping in Braddock. It was a real pride of, of Pittsburgh, this community. And then, you know, with the industrialization, because we have a steel mill in town, jobs were lost overnight, and then the crack epidemic hit, and all these things happened, and this community of Braddock was essentially decimated. It lost 90% of its population, its buildings, and it happened very quickly. And, and I was struck by this idea that this city has contributed so much, right? It was where Andrew Carnegie's first steel mill was built. Well, and then people walked away from that. And the kicker, like the sign for me was that the steel that built the Brooklyn Bridge came from Braddock, Pennsylvania. And I just thought it was a sign. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I I wrote a letter to the borough of Braddock and shared the work that I was doing in Newark. And I wanted to visit and just experience it. I wanted to see what it was like for a community to leave. What does that look like? And I came to, so the letter ended up with my now husband. Um, He called me and I planned the visit and I came to visit a few months later. He was the mayor of the town at that time? Yeah, he was the recently elected mayor. He had been mayor for a couple months. Okay. And you visited to see the town? I did. I drove out. I remember before I left, my mom asked me to send a photo of my outfit, you know, like a <laughs> running joke. Like if I have to identify you, I need to know what you're wearing. Oh. And my brother was like, I hope this mayor is not a serial killer. That's the last thing they said when I walked out of the door. Oh no. <laughs> but instead you met your future husband right. and now you, and now you've been married for how long? We've been, it's been 13 years together. We have three kids. Um, and and he's become the lieutenant governor. Right. He's become the lieutenant governor. That's great. That's great. So, you know, so I know we're going to jump a little bit of time here. So you're married and you have kids and, and uh, you're still, uh, you know, doing all the advocacy that you do. I've, I saw this uh, written in another article about a very interesting request you had uh, when your husband asked what you wanted as a fourth wedding anniversary present. Tell that story. <laughs> So I'm, you know, I think because of my childhood and how I had to pack my whole life in a suitcase, I have no attachment to material things. Like it's, so it's really hard to get me a gift because I, I don't really, I just want love. I don't really care about things. Um, but it was our anniversary and he asked, you know, what I wanted. And I said, I want a shipping container. Um, I had this, you know, I loved shipping containers always because they're so interesting. They're so strong. And just like so many places and people and things, someone decides at one point that they're useless and they get sent to a landfill. So I Mm. wanted a decommissioned shipping container, which means it's one that was already in the ocean working between seven to 10 years. And sometime in that window, someone decides this container is useless, send it to a landfill. And I wanted one of those. 
Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do with the shipping container? So the shipping container, the idea is that we would create this space that was really dignified and loving and people could come for and shop for things. Like these things could be things that people donated, like their children outgrew them or they moved, but also retailers because in my dumpster diving days, I remember seeing all the surplus and being so shocked by it. So I wanted to create a space where that exchange can happen. You know, so many people have so much and so many people have so little. How can we help each other and help the environment, keep things out of a landfill, but also serve a purpose with those things? Sure. And, it, and, and that shipping container, where is that at now? And is that still going? Oh, yeah. So we're eight years in. We were the first free store in the country built on a model of trust that you can trust people. And the idea is that we would receive donations from people, um, but also partner with retailers and corporations. And we would provide those items at no cost. So yeah, that's cool. um, at the end of the season, like let's say all the stuff that gets thrown out at the end of any holiday season, the, the week after Halloween, anything that didn't sell, all these stores were just throwing all those costumes in a landfill. Um, so we began collecting them and holding them for the next Halloween where we can provide children with brand new costumes. Wow, that's so, great. Yeah, so coincidentally, next Wednesday is our Halloween event that we do every year. So we'll have costumes for every kid in the community to come and shop and and pick and feel good in them. And these are perfectly good things, but would have otherwise ended up in the landfill. Sure, sure. Tell me about um, 412 Food Rescue. So that was born at the Free Store as well, because one of the items we began uh, collecting was food. We partnered with Costco. It was our first partnership. I witnessed them um, starting some bananas that they thought wasn't, weren't gonna sell because they were yellow. They were no longer green, and most people want to buy, you know, green bananas. Um, right. And I said, you know, if you call me next time and I come pick it up, I can give them out at the free store. Would you be open to that? And they loved the idea. So for the last eight years, we rescued all the produce, baked goods, deli items from Costco. And through the, these efforts, we were able to essentially eradicate food insecurity for the families that we served those that had access to us but we thought right. about every other location and those who didn't have access to us so four and two food rescue was born at the free store and it grew from there and it was a way to mobilize volunteers to pick up the items that are surplus in all these different grocery stores and facilities and wholesalers and then drop them off to partners that we have and that could be shelters housing authority different nonprofits, different food pantries. And we've been doing that work now for several years. Wow, that is incredible. This next one, so tell me about this. I thought, I thought this was really, really interesting. Tell me about the people's pool. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, in my new role as second lady, I was able to continue the work that I've been doing for years, but with a slightly different platform. And as part of my husband's role as lieutenant governor, there was a residence that was provided with that um, as a Pennsylvania thing. So the lieutenant governor had a mansion 
um, it's, it's called a mansion. It just looks like a house, um, but it's the Lieutenant Governor's mansion with a giant pool. And John and I both felt wrong about living there. We were actually the first family not to live at that house. Um, because one, we don't think taxpayers should pay for our housing. And two, we have a house that's just fine that we can live in. And we yeah. rented an apartment in Harrisburg. So we just felt that it wasn't necessary. And we said, well, no, thank you. We won't be utilizing the house, but I really want the pool. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I've studied statistics on drowning and I know the dark racial history that we have in this country in regards to swimming pools and access and I wanted to create an opportunity for this pool to be used for the state so you know it felt wrong that only my children could swim in that pool yeah what I wanted to do is if my children can swim in that pool then I want every child in Pennsylvania so for the first time in the history of Pennsylvania we were able to open that pool to the public and we wow. did um, free swim lessons and swim education and safety classes. And we had nonprofits and schools and kids from all over the state who came and spent last summer um, learning to swim with us. And it was the best summer ever. That's incredible. That's a great story. You know, I wanted to tell, I, you have a lot of things, a lot of projects that you do. Um, and I wanted to give my listeners just a sample of the good that you do for your community. I can't go into every project that you work on because the podcast isn't long enough. <laughs> but, but I wanted to touch on some of, the, some of the things that I thought were really cool. And I wanna move on to some other, um, some other things. So one of your big platforms um, is advocacy for immigrants. So I wanna talk about that a little bit because you are really the perfect model of how to come to America and how to become a legal citizen, how to contribute to your community. The, you know, you are, I think, what a lot of people would define as like that, that American dream in a way. And maybe that's kind of a cliched thing to say these days, but what I wanna get into is, you know, does immigration law need to change? What's fair for immigration these days? So we need to have a compassionate approach to immigration. And I don't think that has ever been done before where we look at these as people, right? Like we, if we don't, then we need to change what's written on the Statue of Liberty. Like we are truly a country that immigration is our history. And not only is it our history, but it is also our future. And we need to, to get real about that, that we need to have a compassionate approach to it. And I'll have people that will say, well, you're so nice and you do nice things. I don't have an issue with you. It's with the other immigrants, right? Yeah. I'm in this unique situation where I can have this conversation that, well, what do you mean by other? Well, those illegals. Well, do you know that I came here undocumented and I lived undocumented for a long time? And I, I think I have this unique opportunity to try to humanize that. You know, like I'll say to someone, you know, you'll hear parents say, as a pretty common statement, they'll say, I'll, I'd do anything for my kids. I'd kill for my kids. I would do anything for them. And that's something that's applauded, right? Like, what a great parent. You would do anything for your kids. Well, why anything doesn't include migrating to a country where your family would be safe, right? Because I think that counts as anything. Um, I know my mom walked away from a career to work as a domestic worker and she yeah. 
said she would clean toilets for the rest of her life, knowing that we were safe here. So I like to challenge this idea that because of pure luck, no skill, no talent, no hard work, you just happen to be born here by pure luck. And yeah. that does not make you superior to someone who just didn't have that luck. So I, I like to challenge those those ideas. And you know, immigrants love this country. That's why we're here. We love this country so much. So my story isn't unique in that I'm I'm you know, doing some good, a ton of immigrants are because we're so grateful that we get to be here in our country. Right. I, I hear a lot of, um, a lot of, and I talk to a lot of people in my circle about how this could be addressed. And I hear a lot of different interesting theories about how immigration should be. And I've, I've heard proposals of people should just be able to buy into coming to America, like it's a fee and you become a citizen. I've heard people talk about immigration should match what another country's immigration is. So if it's harder to get it to become an immigrant to, to Germany, it should be the same here, that it should, the policy should be matching from country to country. It's not easy to talk about how to fairly let people come in and become documented. And uh, that's the real I think that's the real catch with everything. So I'm not sure. I, I don't know how easy it will ever be. But but you are absolutely right. Like my family is German. They were German immigrants. They came came in, and, you know, port of entry in New York and bought land in the Midwest. Like that was kind of our our family history. So everyone in this country has been an immigrant to some extent. Right. So I, and I don't know what that answer is, but I I, I would like to see leadership that leads with compassion on this issue. That is not. Um, using people as bargaining chips. You've seen DACA and what has happened with DACA in, over the last year. And these were lives in limbo, right? These are children who were born here through no fault of their own, who are more American than anything else. And they were used as bargaining chips. So yeah. I'd like to see compassion in the equation when it comes you're, to And you're absolutely right. That is the key word that has to be at the core of this is the compassion the compassion for the human being, the human life. And that has to be at the core of the issue as it's being discussed. Whatever has to wind up on paper has to be written with that compassion. I think you said it perfectly there. Let's say, if you don't mind, let's talk about, I wanna talk about where you stand on other, on other issues. Where are you at with LGBTQ? Oh, they're my people. You know, I, I hate that they um, so often feel not a part of conversations, not welcome in rooms. You know, my husband had the extreme honor of performing the first same-sex wedding in, out here before it was even legal. We hosted it at our home. It was a beautiful event. And, you know, my four-year-old, um, he's 11 now, but he was four when this happened. And he, I had a conversation with him that just summed up how things could be different. And, you know, as mayor, my husband did lots of weddings because that's one of the roles that you get to have as mayor. Yeah. We married people all the time. And this wedding, I'm running around, I'm very excited. I get a cake and I'm getting the house ready. And my four-year-old says, what, like, what's going on? And I said, oh, we have a wedding today. And he was like, so? Like, that's not a big deal. Daddy does weddings all the time. And I said, well, this time it's two boys getting married. And he looked at me and he was like, and? <laughs> and he walked <laughs> off. Um, 
he didn't blink an eye. He didn't care. It was no different than anything to him. And it was a really simple and really beautiful response. And I think that um, kids get it right <laughs> if they're being raised right. And that was a moment I said, okay, I'm doing a good job. Yeah. <laughs> what about, um, what about homelessness? Do you think homelessness is a financial crisis? Is it drug related? Is it mental illness? There seems to be a real gray area with dealing with homeless problems. I think it's all of the above. I don't think, I don't think most people would choose to be in that situation. I think there's so many things that have happened in, in their lives and their stories are important. And I think they're unique. Um, but I don't think it's a choice that most people would make. I think they've ended up in that position because of a lot of different circumstances in their life. Who, who should address the homeless problem? Is this a private sector issue where nonprofits should help people? Or is it a governmental issue where the government should step in and provide a place or help people? I think it can be all of it. I mean, I think that like, for example, the nonprofits I started, so many of them were started because of policy failures, right? Like if there was a policy that didn't allow you to throw out good food, then my organization would need to exist. Right. Nonprofits pick up where policy has failed often. Um, but I think it should be the effort of all. We should all care about our homeless neighbors. They are right, right. We should all want the best for them too. So I think as many people working in an issue together um, with the right intentions, that's how you problem solve for the long term. That's true. That's true. Does, uh, Penn, I'm not very, I've been through Pennsylvania a million times driving the turnpike, <laughs> you know, but uh, I've never really spent a lot of time uh, in Pennsylvania other than just in Pittsburgh. What is, what is homelessness like throughout Pennsylvania? There's, there is, um, you know, uh, I, I, I don't have numbers to tell you, but I definitely see them. I know there's groups actively working um, with the groups. But there was so much more, like mental health is such a big tie into it. And so yeah. abuse as well. And like I said, I'd love to hear, like their stories are so important. And unless we're willing to listen to their stories, no one can actually help them find their way out into a better place. Sure, sure. What about, uh, what about police reform? This, is, this year has been like the craziest year ever. And, uh, and, and obviously the, the kind of the, the police are in the spotlight right now. What is your perspective on the image of police today? Is there a need for a police reform in some way across the country? We have to be realistic about, you know, there is police brutality. I mean, this is a very real thing. Um, Antoine Rose, who was a young man in my community who was killed, um, and he was shot in the back as he ran away. He was a teenager. There's definitely bad cops, and I think good cops will confirm. They, they will agree that there are bad cops. I think we have to look at all the systems, and I think if, if – whatever decision you're working on, whether that's immigration, whether that's police, whether that is homelessness, if you're leading the interests of the people, if you're leading that conversation, if compassion is your ultimate goal, and you're leading that conversation with love, then you'll be led to the right answers. Um, right. That has to be the force that's leading these conversations. It has to be a love for your neighbor and for each other. You know, from my perspective, so... I'm 50 years old. And when I was growing up, 
you know, the, the police officer, the fireman, the mailman, these public figures, you know, you kind of, you wave to them. It was that, that Americana thing where, you know, they're your friend, right? But at some point, when it probably when I was 20 years old, the image of the police went from wearing slacks and patent leather shoes and waving to people and like, which really existed. That type of television and storybook perception of the cop was really there. And it became something where all police wanted to dress like they were SWAT team. And now all their gear became more militant. Their attitude shifted. They seemed unfriendlier. And there became a time that I distinctly remember in my 20s where it went from the police are your friends to you cringed when a cop car was behind you, you know? And I don't know exactly how that shift had happened, how that shift happened or how the perception of police changed, but there was definitely a definitive shift in the image of police. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but that was my take on it. And I, and I always felt it was more of an image issue than anything, or maybe it was uh, the hiring procedures or just, I don't know what it was, but there was definitely this definitive shift of how police acted toward citizens at one point and then again later. But anyways, that was, that was my two cents on it, was kind of how I used to look at police and, and how that changed for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know when it happened, but I yeah. there's definitely been a shift. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and that's the interesting thing about it. Like, I don't believe police are bad at all. And but certainly there could be, you know, the whole cliche about the bad apple, you know, <laughs> that's kind of the thing. And that it's, uh, it's really a, a weird dynamic. And, and uh, I hope that, that uh, things change with that. I want to circle back to what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. So you were recently the victim of a verbal assault. And you kind of told that story um, at the beginning of this. When you, so I, I assume this lady just walked away on her, on her own or what happened? Um, so I drove off. Oh, you so, drove off. Okay. Yeah. She yeah. was still yelling. That's when I drove off. I was backing out when I was able to capture her outside. By then I'm shaking, struggling to get my phone, you know, trying to keep it together. I don't do well with confrontations. I kind of just shut down and, and start to cry usually. Um, but I was able to get my phone and capture that. But if you watch the video, I'm driving and backing up while she's yelling and cursing at me. Um, and then I was able to just drive off. And you're a defender of those people that are facing hate and injustice. So to be on the receiving end of that, you, how did you react to it? I mean, not well. I, I, I've gotten used to over the years of like the online attacks and I get those pretty regularly, whether they be by email or letters or just comments online. Um, I've, I've gotten used to those. I've learned how to manage them. I've learned that, you know, it's not personal. You know, I tell myself these things so it doesn't affect me so much. Sure. It was the first time that it was to my face and it was so hate filled and, um, it's hard and I'm someone who wants people to like me. I struggle with when people don't. And to have a stranger have so much hate in her eyes towards me was, was a difficult um, thing to process. 
Do you feel that people are viewed as inferior if they're not born in this country? I think there's a small segment that definitely believe that. I mean, it's a minority, um, but she is a part of that. She no doubt saw me as inferior to her. Wow, wow. What, so you've accomplished a lot so far. Is there a goal? Is there something that you want to still do that you haven't done yet? Oh, there's so much I want to do. Um, you know, I want to continue to find solutions to things um, with love. Like, I, I, my work is based on pain always. So I take something that has hurt me or hurt someone I love, and I look at how can I solve this problem creatively, sustainably, um, in a fun way too, right? Because I want to I wanna have a good time doing all this work too. Sure. So I try to keep it light. You know, I'm second lady, but I go by slop. I think slop is really yeah. funny and not stuffy. Uh, <laughs> it's true. I just saw that before. That's funny. So if I can continue to do the work that I love and I can be as vulnerable as I can, you know, I've worked corporate when I was in college and I would cry at board meetings sometime. I mean, I definitely didn't fit in that world, uh, <laughs> but yeah. I can be as soft, as mushy, as vulnerable as I want to be and do the work that I do and really live in my, in my truth and really share my experience. And I'm so lucky that I get to do that. Would you ever go into politics? I, you know, what I've said, I was, I've been asked before and, and it's very nice when people ask, but I've said that politics is mean um, and I'm not, I, <laughs> so I don't see myself ever being, um, ever deliberately going into politics, no. Yeah. Do you, how do you take a project the like, well, it's, I would say any project that you're working on uh, locally and how do you turn it into something national? How does that happen? Is it just people see what you're working on and they want to duplicate it in their own communities or do these things become bigger foundations or bigger nonprofits? How does that movement happen? I've just been really lucky. You know, I don't, I don't self-promote. I don't send press releases. I, I'm uncomfortable talking about myself. Um, but I think if, if the projects are good, somehow they gain traction. And I've been lucky that we've, you know, had national coverage for different initiatives. Um, but, you know, my, my mind works as an immigrant mind, right? Like the, all the work I've done, it's only been because I've, I've lived this story. And I see yeah. things that are different. And I grew up in a third world country. And it, it allows me to have a different perspective on things. So, Absolutely. I, and I, I think that that's really helped me. Um, but I've just been lucky. I don't know. I think, I think the universe has just, has just worked this way. I can't explain that. <laughs> well, to call you a second lady alone is reductive. You know, you're, the, you're an, an immigrant to the country. You're a mother of three children. You spent most of your adult life helping others, uh, whether they've been impoverished, uh, impoverished or uh, immigrants or LGBTQ or minorities, the imprisoned or the hungry, um, you, you're incredible in all of the stuff that you do. Like, I can't, uh, I can't say it anymore. How can people find you out there on the interwebs and social media? How can they see more about what you're doing or help out? Um, you can find me I'm on Twitter as Giselle Fetterman. I'm on Instagram as G-F-E-T-T. If you go to um, forgoodpgh.org, and that's spelled out, F-O-R-G-O-O-D-P-G-H.org, 
you'll see a list of some of my uh, work. My email is there. You can send me a message directly. We'd love to connect with you. Um, I'm, I'm really easy to reach. That's great. That's great. Giselle, I really appreciate you taking the time today to, uh, to talk to my listeners. I think everyone's really going to enjoy the story. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That's great. Thanks for coming out today and we'll talk soon. Okay. Absolutely. Thanks, Pat. Take care. Bye-bye. There you have it, my interview with Giselle Fetterman. Hope you enjoyed it. What a fascinating lady she is. What a great story. I'll see you next week on Quest. Thank you for listening to Quest. Please be sure and rate and review this podcast. This podcast is copyright. Any previously trademarked or copyright content is used by permission. Be sure to visit the official website for the International Association of Metatomics at metatomics.org or find us on social media for other unique content. And make sure to pick up a copy of the book that started a spiritual revolution, Metatomics, The Grand Design, available for sale online and at most major bookstores. Thanks for listening.